Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Wednesdays at SSP, a podcast produced by MIT's Security Studies Program here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. My name is Chris Burns, and I produce this series. This podcast features recordings of our program's Wednesday seminar series, where prominent voices in political science are invited to give a lecture on their current research. Today's featured guest is the Honorable Kevin Rudd. Mr. Rudd is the former Prime Minister of Australia and the current CEO of the Asia Society, based in New York City. Mr. Rudd joins us this week for a special seminar on his new book, The Dangers of a Catastrophic Conflict Between the U.S. and Xi Jinping's China. Rudd graduated from the Australian National University with honors in Chinese studies and is fluent in Mandarin. He also studied at the National Taiwan Normal University in Taipei. So good afternoon, uh, everyone. Uh, welcome to the MIT Security Studies Program. I'm Taylor Fravel, uh, director of uh, the Security Studies Program here at MIT. And it's my really great honor, privilege, and pleasure uh, to welcome uh, Kevin Rudd, who's going to speak to us about uh, his new book, The Avoidable War. So I will flog it for you uh, immediately. Um, it's really terrific. Um, so uh, as many of you uh, surely know, uh, Kevin is president and CEO of the Asia Society and has been president of the Asia Society Policy Institute since January uh, of 2015. He previously served uh, as Australia's 26th Prime Minister from 2007 to 2010, as Foreign Minister from 2010 to 2012, before returning to, to uh, serving as Prime Minister in 2013. He's a graduate of the Australian National University with honors in Chinese studies and is fluent in Mandarin. And unlike most people who write on their CVs that they're fluent in Mandarin, I have been in China with Kevin and know that he really is uh, fluent in Mandarin. It's, it's quite an impressive feat. I've been Only, <laughs> yeah, somehow al alcohol tends to improve all of our fluency, doesn't it? Um, uh, so he's going to be discussing his book today, but I guess what what uh, is not listed here, but is also important to know, amid all of these things he's doing now, he's also in the process of completing a DPhil uh, in Oxford uh, on uh, Xi Jinping thought. So he's a man of really, truly many talents, and it's uh, so wonderful that you uh, made time uh, to come by to MIT. We're really looking forward to uh, what you have to say. Thanks. Well, thank you very much, uh, Taylor. It's great to be back here at MIT. Um, I've uh, come to know, uh, love and respect uh, Taylor's work on the Chinese military, uh, which uh, is right out there at the leadership of the field globally. So it's great to be with a colleague who dedicates himself to the serious study of these things. And to be back at MIT, I've been here many times over the years now, and it's a, it's a great institution. I've been with uh, the other place, we dare not mention its name, uh, uh, the Poor Cousins Down the Road. Uh, starts with H, ends with D, uh, both uh, yesterday and this morning. And the other place which we can mention, Tufts and Fletcher, where I was uh, yesterday morning. And back to New York, where I live, work, and have my being. Nick Greiner, who's the Australian Consul General, uh, uh, to uh, not just the state of New York, but also to the American Northeast. Good to see you here, Nick. Um, I'm going to just spend 10 minutes uh, talking to myself in echo? No. Uh, 10 minutes uh, talking to myself about, uh, talking about, number one, why write a book like this? And number two, what's its core argument? And then let's open it up for a conversation, if that's useful. Um, the reason for uh, putting the book together 
uh, entirely avoidable war. It's, it's not just a rhetorical response to Graham Allison's book, Destined for War, which came out about five years ago or so. Um, David and I, uh, Graham and I are both uh, friends and colleagues. Um, it is because the current state of the US-China relationship is becoming more and more fragile, more and more frayed, and uh, more and more like uh, if we had electricity wiring in this room and all the insulation had been ripped off it and you had a lot of exposed wires running across the floor at the moment, that's kind of what it's like at the moment. The normal layering of politics and diplomacy and the accumulated, shall we say, protective devices of accumulated engagement have been bit by bit ripped away. It's a very raw relationship at the moment. And as someone who first went to China to work... Uh, about 35 years ago, myself. Um, I've never seen it quite like this. Certainly including Tiananmen, and I was in the square in the lead-up to Tiananmen, so I know what that was like, and the sanctions regime with which uh, came after it. And the various other implosions that have occurred, great and small, in the US-China relationship since then. But this, we are in a very challenged time. Um, as the natural support bases for this relationship have been stripped away. <clears throat> and the second point I'd make is uh, because uh, I, like most of you in this room, read history, however poorly, um, you don't have to be a Rhodes Scholar uh, to work out that there are resonances from the past about what happens uh, when you have very raw relationships between great powers, incidents happen and they're predispositioned to escalate and then you end up with crisis, conflict and war. Um, as Graham Allison drummed into my head years ago when I had a year at Harvard uh, after I came second in the Australian elections um, and uh, Harvard extended political asylum to me, um, <laughs> Uh, he always said this, and it stuck in my mind, you can never overstudy the First World War because it was the ultimate avoidable war. None of the Europeans at, the at that time wanted to go to war. Very few of them believed that it was inevitable, um, uh, but it happened. And it was a monumental failure of diplomacy following a political incident, the assassination of the Austrian Archduke, uh, no contemporaries, by the way, if you read the contemporary accounts, knew who he was outside of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, to then create this extraordinary connective tissue across <clears throat> six great empires, uh, which led to a general conflagration which sucked in at least a third of humanity. Uh, and then the world was changed. Chris Clark, if you've read his historical treatment of the war, <clears throat> an Australian compatriot uh, who is Professor of History at Cambridge, England, not Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, his book of 2014-15 uh, entitled uh, The Sleepwalkers, which documents how the great powers of Europe slept walked into that war. It was a monumental failure of diplomacy. So that's the second reason why I've decided to put pen to paper. Third thing I'd like to remark on briefly is, so what's my argument? Um, I think the reality of the US-China relationship today uh, is that it is now into full-blown strategic competition in every level of the relationship, from the military uh, through to uh, ideology 
And whether Beijing or Washington describe it in those terms, that is the actual reality that I observe uh, occurring on the ground. And so whether it's you know, the current um, uh, pogrom in this country against uh, any student or scholar of Chinese background uh, by the US uh, security authorities uh, through to uh, the decision by the Chinese to incarcerate a couple of Canadians over the Huawei matter, uh, this is the stuff of the Cold War. We're not in a Cold War yet because the economic engagement is still too large. Uh, and that's what separates it out qualitatively from Cold War 1.0 between the, Russia, the Soviet Union and the United States at the time. But I see strategic competition writ large in every dimension of this relationship. And the stakes for the competition is not just not we're going to have a game against each other. The stakes are who becomes the dominant power militarily, economically, technologically in Asia, and who becomes the dominant power militarily, technologically, and, uh, and economically globally in time. So it's for real. Final point is, so my argument is you can either have unmanaged strategic competition uh, where there are no rules of the road, no guardrails, uh, fasten your seatbelts and see what happens, and history is an uncomfortable guide on that, once again, because uh, it could end catastrophically uh, as incidents arise. And those of us in the security policies community who look at the daily unfolding of incidents in the East China Sea, across the Taiwan Straits and the South China Sea and in cyber and in space are all acutely aware that it's possible for any one of these any day of the week, given an, ap an appropriate political admixture, uh, given the, the diplomatic insulation has, as I said before, been stripped away, escalate into something much larger. So you can either have unmanaged strategic competition or what I advocate in the uh, policy conclusions to this book, managed strategic competition, which has de minima rules of the road, de minima guardrails and de minima mutual understandings within the, a mutually agreed joint strategic framework. This is not a text about international hand-holding. Uh, it is not a view of the world which says, well, if only the Chinese and the Americans just got into a room quietly together, turned down the volume, and listened to each other with intensity in their hearts and love in their souls, it will all be better by next Tuesday. Uh, it ain't like that. Uh, as friends of mine who have been previous commanders-in-chief of PACOM have said to me, strategic trust is a much overrated thing. <clears throat> The realist nature of the strategic competition in which we now engage doesn't permit this view. Uh, it might be fashionable in Brussels, it might be fashionable in um, foreign policy think tanks in the European Union, it has nothing to do with the underlying core strategic reality of the, of the China-US relationship. So what I uh, do instead is utter an, offer an entirely realist frame, which is, number one, what are the four to five core strategic red lines between these two countries on the matters that really count, Taiwan, South China Sea, East China Sea, uh, and uh, cyber and space. And can these be communicated to each other with a level of clarity which causes the other side to know that if those lines were crossed, it would invite immediate retaliatory action, politically, militarily, diplomatically, or uh, economically. 
And is that better than what we've got at the moment, which is complete ambiguity and all the above, and what I describe as push and probe and see what happens uh, by five o'clock tomorrow morning? Oh, that didn't work. They actually reacted and blew someone's brain out. Or it did work and they did nothing, which is the terra nova we currently find ourselves in. Um, the second uh, part of uh, managed strategic competition is if that can be achieved at a level of high level, uh, head of state level diplomacy and national security advisor on one side of the telephone and the uh, director of the Foreign Affairs Office of the Central Committee and the two vice chairs of the Central, Commil Central Military Commission on the other side of the telephone in Beijing. <clears throat> then in the rest of the relationship, you can proceed with non-lethal strategic competition to your heart's content. You can continue to build your militaries, you continue to uh, expand your foreign policy influence, you can continue to engage economically or compete economically, uh, you can seek to outdo each other in trade and investment and most critically technology, the hunt for global talent and all the things that make for ultimate strategic competitiveness, uh, and even the ideological conflict in terms of the ideas that would constitute a future global order, liberal international or authoritarian capitalist, Take your pick. As I say in the book, may the best system win. Now, I have a view which system may win that, but I think it's important for the folks in Beijing and Washington to have a view that that can be conducted in a non-lethal fashion. And the final element of the three-part uh, jigsaw that I construct in the book uh, is that there can still be defined areas of strategic collaboration where the national interests of each side determine that such collaboration is essential for their national interests. And so climate obviously looms very large, uh, not because it's about hand-holding, quite the reverse. It's about a conclusion in each country that absent drawing down greenhouse gas emissions by the extent necessary to prevent global temperature increases to exceed three or four degrees centigrade by the end of this century, and it will completely undermine Chinese agriculture, it will completely destroy large swaths of American industry, uh, and will... Uh, therefore fundamentally affect the lifestyle and well-being of their peoples. But other areas like the next pandemic, surely we could do better than the last one in terms of global collaboration, uh, but also areas like continued global financial stability, rarely in the headlines, absent a crisis, and then it never gets out of the headlines. And you need the Americans and the Chinese at least around the same table on that one, as I learned experientially during the global financial crisis when we formed the G20 at summit level to deal with it. That's the argument. I'm happy to have a conversation about it. Thank you very much. You are listening to an episode of Wednesdays with SSP featuring Kevin Rudd, the former Prime Minister of Australia. So I'll kick off with a few questions uh, for Kevin, then I'll sort of turn it over uh, to all of you in the audience. But um, I guess, so what, one element of the book that I really enjoyed reading was the section on scenarios. <laughs> I thought you um, would. That's got Taylor written all over it. Yeah. And so um, could you just talk a little bit about these scenarios and I guess which ones you view as most dangerous and which ones you view as most likely? Uh, absent the, without, without the effort being put in place to oh, I'm sorry about that. manage the competition. Yeah, uh, to give uh, the book some reality, I basically said, 
given current realities and no change, including, let's call it diplomatic change of the type that I recommend in this book, how could um, Taiwan unfold as a real-world scenario? Now, most people choose not to go there because it's dealing with the politics of the unthinkable. But part of the reason for the book is to cause people to think about the politics and the reality of the unthinkable so that they then began to contemplate other ways of approaching the problem. Number one is, uh, I won't go through all the scenarios, but here are two or three. Um, number one is what I describe as uh, America's Munich moment. America blinks. Um, and that's the ultimate aspiration of the Chinese political class and the military establishment, is to pick that centre of gravity in, in US national politics and um, a level of Chinese military preponderance which would cause the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs to walk into the President of the United States and say on day one of a Chinese attack of one form or another on Taiwan, uh, we can't win this. Or we may win this, but the risks are very high, with a view to the President of the United States then saying, well, we're not in this. I call that the, um, uh, the Munich moment. Um, with President Trump, um, depending on which day of the week uh, you were talking to President Trump and how his biorhythms were performing on that day and the nature of his diet, uh, then who, who could guess? Um, but the net takeout from allies about President Trump was that uh, he was not pro-alliance. He saw the allies as a burden rather than as a responsibility, let alone as an opportunity. So when I talk about the Munich moment, this is not an idle reflection. Um, most allies would not talk about it publicly, but they speculated about it privately, which is what would America do under these circumstances. So the second is that America militarily engages, and what would be the reasons underpinning that? Pretty simple, really, that the cause for democracy in Taiwan uh, could not just be readily extinguished uh, in the eyes of the domestic body politic. And people would uh, regard that as uh, an ultimate trashing of, um, um, of American uh, values globally, unless America assisted to resist it directly. And there's a second factor which would cause an American participation, which would be an American calculus, which I think is real, that if you didn't militarily intervene to support Taiwan, at that moment you would see the evaporation in global confidence in the reliability of the United States and the perspective of allies everywhere, both in Asia and in Europe. Now, we all know that the Taiwan Relations Act is not a mutual defence treaty. However, um, International political opinion is not into refined parsing on these questions. They get it that Ukraine is outside the fold of NATO, but you've seen where global public opinion is on the question of Ukraine. Um, and on Taiwan, I think it's not an unreasonable conclusion. Uh, if you are in charge of the US foreign policy and military policy establishment to say, unless we do this, the Allies' confidence in us would collapse. But having done so, and having intervened militarily, you lose. The conflict remains conventional, and I'll come back to other non-conventional scenarios in a minute. I call this the American Waterloo scenario. Um, not Munich, but Waterloo. Um, 
third one is what I call, look on the bright side, the midway scenario, <laughs> and uh, which is uh, the 5th Cavalry does come to the rescue. Uh, there is a stellar military performance by the United States, hopefully in partnership with uh, the deterrent, uh, the, the effect of uh, the uh, Taiwanese indigenous forces, and China is thwarted. Um, there are further scenarios as well, uh, which are variations on a theme. Uh, and I'll finish just with these two. Uh, the fourth would be uh, the Chinese Communist Party, as an extension of Midway, fears for its uh, future uh, existence because military defeat at the hands of the Taiwanese and the Americans over Taiwan, given the doctrinal proclamations of the centrality of this to the future of the Chinese nation, the Communist Party, the PLA, and, um, and everything else, would be so catastrophic and terminal, I would think, for Xi Jinping's leadership that there is an active consideration of using weapons of mass destruction uh, in order to prevent the collapse of the party. Now, this may be seen by some to be fanciful. I do not regard it as probable, but frankly, I think it should exist within the possibilities uh, of the structure. As I discussed with Taylor over lunch, I'm sitting there in the bunker of Zhongnanhai and, uh, and despite all the best protestations from the Chinese uh, Navy and Air Force, it's gone really badly in the Taiwan Straits that day. Um, and then when you look at the options, um, they're not likely to consider my global responsibilities as a nuclear weapon state um, as, as necessarily their first priority in how they respond to the existential political reality they would then face. Political dictators tend not to be like that. It doesn't mean that they would, push a button or threaten to push a button, but they may engage in something which would suggest as a further deterrent effect that they may. And that actually enters us into a different set of realities again. Uh, the final scenario I'll touch on, and the, the one I prefer most, um, is uh, deterrence works. And that in the course of the 2020s, uh, two things happen. The United States, <clears throat> through Indo-Pacific Command, uh, continues and expands the program that it really began several years ago to rectify the massive imbalances across the Taiwan Straits which have evolved, both in uh, the uh, quality of uh, military deployments and the nature of the, of the weapon systems, together with its quantum. And that the Taiwans, looking at Ukraine, but even before that, so there is a huge value to be had by massive investment in asymmetric warfare <clears throat> so that any successful landing on the island would be met with such ferocious and sustained hostility from 70% of the Taiwanese people who say they oppose any form of um, political union with China under any circumstances and about that number saying that they would do what the good people of Ukraine have just done. That the combined effect of... Uh, those two sets of actions in the decade ahead lead to effective deterrence. So I'm putting my money behind that one. Um, the whole purpose of this <clears throat> is to preserve the peace on the way through to that endpoint. That's how the two propositions relate. Great, thanks, Evan. Um, the scenarios really are very well worth reading. I commend them, them all, all to you. I had a question, another question about um, how to implement your proposal. I mean, it makes eminent sense. Um, and I guess I see two potential obstacles 
both of which I think draw would draw on, I want to ask you about drawing on your expertise in politics itself, right? So one would be the way in which U.S.-China relations are increasingly, we'll call it, becoming ideologized, right? Where it's just permeating everything, but also portraying the relationship in very stark terms such that it could be hard to come up with mutually agreeable red lines. And the second element here is just simply the domestic politics of coming to this kind of arrangement. Um, I mean, I know you're a keen student of China and of you know, Xi Jinping thought more recently, you spent almost most of the last decade in and out of the United States, but watching our politics sort of up close and personal. How or what will be required of leaders sort of in both countries to manage the constituencies that now uh, find themselves well served by having a more adversarial sort of relationship with the other country? And, and how would we think about or how would you sort of suggest um, this agreement or th these ideas be implemented? Two points I'd answer that with. Um, one is the lessons of the first Cold War. And the second is um, how effectively to navigate domestic politics around the uh, reality of um, catastrophic war. Um, on the first point, which is um, uh, the lessons of the Cold War, uh, we had a near-death experience in 1962 uh, at Cuba. Um, a very interesting thing happened in the decade after Cuba. Um, is that both the Soviets and the uh, the Americans figured out that coming close to blowing each other's brains out was not a good thing. And so what happened in that ensuing decade, in broad summary, was <clears throat> deterrence, um, detente, diplomacy, and partial nuclear disarmament. Uh, and more importantly, for the purposes of this conversation, some agreed rules of the road. So that, as we know, for those of us who looked at near-nuclear incidents between late 60s and the late 80s, um, when the Soviet Union finally imploded, uh, that by and large, that what I describe as de minima rules of the road prevailed. So this ain't Cold War 2.0 for a whole bunch of reasons, um, bilateral economic engagement being one of them and the dimensions of it between the world's largest and second largest economies as opposed to the Soviet Union, which was then not. Um, but I think there are some threads to be drawn from that experience in the, from the most unlikely of circumstances. So the circumstances now with China and the United States are not as dramatic as they were in 62. And this is uh, not uh, Cold War 2.0 yet. Second point is um, uh, the one advantage, I think, of Ukraine as a war is it's caused the peoples of the world to conclude once again that war is not fanciful, that it's actually a real-world possibility, and to be reacquainted that war is not a computer game. It's not a bunch of smash-em-down, knock-em-out, uh, funny figures on a screen. It's flesh and blood and the loss thereof. So the way to begin to re-navigate, um, reconstitute and then navigate national discussions, both in uh, China and the United States, among leadership elites, that the peoples of both countries are not keen on the idea of war. Um, and therefore, there must be 
a pragmatic mechanism to dramatically conduct the strategic competition I've just referred to uh, without permanently existing on the edge of that possibility. Now, in Beijing, ironically, that may be easier to do than in Washington. Uh, Beijing has its own game plan, its own strategic timetable, vis-a-vis Taiwan and vis-a-vis the rest. But because it's elite politics as opposed to mass politics, um, it is, as it were, more manageable. Ultimately, it's the, an oligarchy which has to be convinced of the argument. Hi, mate. Come and take a seat. The... Um, um, the, uh, and there is a sense in China right now, given I've just put this book out, that Xi Jinping has got too far out ahead of his skis on Russia, Ukraine, and there's a critique of Xi Jinping about having gone too far, too fast, too early against the United States and its allies, generating neurologic reactions, both in terms of the US national security strategy of 2017, the national defense strategy, uh, the creation of uh, the quad at uh, summit level, and now most recently, the evolution of walkers, all of which are classic balancing devices against a rising power, if those of us who accept the precepts of realist international relations theory. And so there's a critique of Xi domestically, which could make that, in fact, uh, a more amenable set of arguments. The final thing, word about the politics of Beijing is, um, those of us who deal with their think tank community a fair bit, and I, I do, despite COVID, they're hunting around for such a, quote, joint strategic framework now to manage this god-awful relationship, because they're not ready in their own system to go to war this decade. You are listening to an episode of Wednesdays with SSP featuring Kevin Rudd, the former Prime Minister of Australia. Separate question mark as to whether they will be next decade, which is what I, where I think the optimal dangers lie in terms of uh, Taiwan scenarios. So for that aggregation of reasons, I don't think this is a lost cause in terms of the internal debate within Beijing. They won't call it managed strategic competition, um, and they may adapt it, but I, I think it's worth having the argument. Washington, D.C., where you've got an administration which is uh, terrified of the Congress, uh, that if they do anything to adopt a more um, diplomatic channel uh, with uh, the Chinese, that they'll be accused of being soft on communism, soft on China, and therefore uh, be smashed politically and electorally, which is the mood in the Congress. I mean, I go down there reasonably regular basis. I've got friends who are Republicans and Democrats. And it's very much a raw red meat environment down there, which um, no vegetarians on China at the moment. You know, it's just like that. So um, uh, it's a hard old environment. I don't even think um, uh, moderate, let alone Trumpian Republicans, have much of a mood for a war. So beneath the layer of rhetoric, there is an interest in how can we kind of navigate our way through while still embracing H.R. McMaster's uh, national security strategy principles of uh, strategic competition, uh, now largely bipartisan, um, but without constantly living at the edge. What are the probabilities? I don't know. I don't know the political systems well enough in both countries. I was lived in both and know the elites reasonably well. Um, uh, not even an even money bet, but there's a hunt for ideas about how to maintain strategic stability at the moment, both in DC and the 
five or six people that matter and in Beijing and the five or six people that matter. And this may help nudge them a bit in the direction of thinking how that might be done, and that's the only reason I've written it. Um, this last question from me before going to the audience is I'd, I'd like to just to ask you what are the general uh, lessons you've learned from studying Xi Jinping's thoughts uh, as they bear on kind of how he is either thinking of approaching the United States or thinking of approaching um, sort of China's position in the world more, more generally and, and sort of is there space within that framework for the kinds of ideas that you suggest uh, ought to be adopted? Yeah, I'd say to each of you, don't study Xi Jinping thought <laughs> unless you really want to be driven stark raving mad because um, I've had to read all this stuff in the last several years as I prepare sending off my dissertation to uh, Oxford on the 22nd of April, assuming I can finish my footnoting in time. Um, PhD students, I'm, I share your pain. <laughs> the, um, I'm a bit, little later to the project than a number of you. Um, two things come out. <clears throat> Xi Jinping thought is a much overrated thing. Uh, it's a koha. Uh, it is a slogan. If you look at Xi Jinping Sisyang, uh, really, on the internalities of it, it's this amorphous umbrella concept <clears throat> within which anything and everything is grouped in order to establish that there is a consistency of ideological direction, both on the economy, politics, and, uh, and foreign policy. But on ideology in China, those sort of questions. Um, Marxism-Leninism uh, has, in my judgment, a serious uh, framing <clears throat> utility in the way in which uh, Xi Jinping and those around him view reality. And it's not just dialectical materialism and historical materialism and the classic tools of Marxist analysis, though they are there. And what is never rendered publicly to any of us is the application of those analytical tools to their analysis of the the huge external contradiction, which is the United States facing the um, future continuity of the Chinese Revolution. Um, it's not just that as a methodology, it's the conclusions they reach. My best summary of the Xi Jinping worldview and all of its crudity, that is my summary, not his ideology, uh, is got three points to it. His uh, ideology is as follows. Um, I, by making the party more Leninist, will take the centre of gravity of Chinese politics more to the left because that is necessary to control the party and to control the party in the economy uh, and in the country. The second, not Leninism, but Marxism, I will take the centre of gravity, the Chinese economy, further to the left, because if I don't, inequality of the order of magnitude we see it in China will undermine the legitimacy of the Communist Party altogether. And there's another reason for taking the economy further to the Marxist left. If I don't, the private sector will become too dominant in China 
and the likes of uh, Jack Ma and Alibaba and Pony Ma and all the other megastars of the Chinese private sector become too powerful semi-independent agents within the Chinese state. And I, as a <clears throat> dialectical materialist, I'm not about to allow the social superstructure to get that much out of control, given the changes which have occurred in the economic base of China. And I will now have to attend to the relations of production, class, rather than just the factors of production, which is what Deng Xiaoping focused on for 35 years. So I'm moving the economy to the left. The third element of Xi Jinping's worldview, if you look at it carefully, um, is taking Chinese nationalism to the right um, simultaneously with the two moves to the left as part of, but not the only driver of, moving Chinese foreign policy and security policy in a more interventionist and assertive and some would argue aggressive direction. And some would say, well, how does that all make ideological sense together? Well, the term I use in the yet-to-be-submitted dissertation, <clears throat> still not with its footnotes done, um, that's the weekend's joyful task. And, um, God, I hate footnotes. <laughs> I, I could never have been an academic. I just, having done this piece of writing, I could just never... There's not a single footnote in this book. And that's the way I like it. It's, it's all my prejudices written down without proof. Your, 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 your DPL is payback for the lack of footnotes. <laughs> Thank you, Taylor. I appreciate that. That's what Ian Johnson said to me this morning away from Harvard. Um, I had a very uh, complicated thought I was working on at that point. Uh, and it's now just escaped me. But no, how do all these things work together? The three elements I've just referred to. <clears throat> the domestic political control means reasons. As a Leninist party, as a Marxist-Leninist party, he's taken the domestic measures I've referred to. But both of them are potentially legitimacy-depriving uh, measures. People don't like less political freedom. And China is now less free than it was 10 years ago. NGOs under threat, um, dissident opinions within universities under threat, arrested, uh, classroom debates, uh, academics now being reported on by their uh, students in their class at Beidou and Tsinghua and every other university in the country. Um, one view from the top, uh, uh, the core leader, uh, people don't like that, but he's doing it for Leninist control reasons. Nor do they like the idea that the consequences of <clears throat> an economy more attentive to Marxist principles on Gongtong Fu Yu, wealth redistribution, and keeping the private sector under control, they don't like the idea that China will not grow as fast and for there to be less wealth. And the Chinese economy has been slowing for the last three or four years. And part of it has been what I would describe as self-induced by uh, economic policy decisions of a discretionary nature, that is, taking it to the left. You therefore need nationalism on the right um, to provide the legitimacy ballast, uh, which the other two things are depriving you of. That's part of the argument both of the non-footnoted dissertation but buried in the pages of this thing as well. So for all those reasons, um, uh, we end up in a set of circumstances where China's, um, uh, the ideology, to use the term of your question before, 
makes it more problematic to deal with as China. But if the economy really starts to tank, then I think we enter into a whole new world of political possibilities as the system seeks to navigate, uh, I won't say its survival, but ceases to navigate a new set of more stressful circumstances, in which case a formula such as this helps buy stability for the period ahead, if all that makes sense. Great, thank you. Um, I actually do look forward to reading your thesis. Uh, footnotes at all. Um, actually, I especially look forward to reading the footnotes. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> that really just, worries just me. Just really, uh, uh, I'm in your weekend. It'll be a letter to yeah, that's the... that's how academics time, read. They open the book and... Times Literary Supplement, yeah. letter from Taylor Fravel. Kevin Rudd's page 462 of his destination, footnote 26, said the following error. <laughs> <laughs> um... Wonderful. So the floor is open. Um, let's see. I'm going to start with Suzanne Berner, but the rest of you keep your hands up. Um, Suzanne, please ask your question. Uh, so uh, I've just finished reading your book, which really I learned so much from it. It's really a remarkable. Thank you. It's a remarkable book. But uh, in the book, um, the role of Xi Jinping is far larger than in what you've presented to us today. And there's a kind of tension, I think, between the realist case that you've laid out here today and Xi Jinping that, that um, became clear to me, I guess, because of the Ukraine war. And that is that when we look at a leader like Putin and we ask what kind of rationale is involved in a leader who listens to no op opposition, who isolates himself from uh, competing all alternative views. Many of the things that seem to lie at the heart of Putin's misjudgments about how the war would go seem to be equally true of Xi Jinping. Have you not portrayed this figure in the book, and perhaps in your way of thinking of this, as someone with more rationality, more ability to see the way the world is going, um, then perhaps it's the case of somebody who has so uh, well, relentlessly, actually, eliminated every opposing alternative view in his environment? I suppose my argument in response is that um, leadership psychology having been a leader myself, is a, is a troublesome business uh, to write empirically about. And uh, I had thought about it, but it's hard to write. And I've spent a reasonable amount of time with Xi Jinping over the years. It's not that I'm frightened about writing about these questions, but his actual approach to the business of uh, national strategy is something I can speculate about rather than know. What I can present and what I've sought to present, for example, in the 10 concentric circles of uh, Xi Jinping's worldview and prioritization of his interests is what I've observed empirically um, from his, both his declaratory statements but also his operational behavior over the last 10 years. So that's why I've done what I've done. Um, and if your concern is that I presented, therefore, the perf perfect rational actor, acting in a predictable way within a framework of strategic realism or international relations theory realism, um, then that's probably a hazard of the presentation. Um, why I 
ultimately qualify my acceptance of realist principles and why I'm no fan of Mearsheimer, for example, um, God bless his soul, John, um, is that ultimately John denies political agency. Um, and I don't. I mean, I've been in too many rooms over the years where leaders make decisions which were not necessarily in what you describe as rational self-interest, either of themselves or the state. There's a whole bunch of other admixtures involved. Um, and uh, dare I say it in a group such as this, but when Taylor reads the dissertation, you'll see a partial embrace of realism, but a partial embrace also of constructivist approaches within foreign policy analysis to understand how a leader exercises discretionary decisions driven by a whole series of additional domestic imperatives. So what I've tried to do is present the world as they are marching to uh, and his uh, set of priorities, partly to turn a light bulb on in the minds of a number of people trying to make sense of what China is doing, rather than to conclude that this is the inexorable path of the future from which there is no off-ramp. There are many, and the agency of political leaders provides that. I'm going to do what I don't normally do. Uh, the folks who come regularly to our seminars know, which is uh, ask another question, <laughs> ask a follow-up question to the speaker. Um, it's always a worry when Tyler does that. No, no, no. So this is right. So this raises an issue that I think you're just well placed to, to reflect on, which is um, right. Obviously, Xi Jinping has centralized a lot of political power, and it's hard to know from the outside um, how the so-called interagency process sort of is working in China and sort of what. Um, if Xi Jinping is really be, being presented with sort of the full array of options or descriptions of how kind of policies are working or not working. And, and so I guess is there a danger to get to the question um, that, I mean, maybe setting aside the psychology, the, the fact or the way in which he centralized power and, you know, put fear into a lot of people means that, you know, he's, he's getting bad advice from those around him. And there are very, you know, there are not many voices willing to sort of present ideas that might be at odds with what um, you know, has been emphasized in people's daily or the things that they're reading. And so do you, do you, do you get a sense of, of um, how, you know, through your other interactions, sort of how well um, sort of this process is working and how well he might be placed to maybe avoid some of the blunders that Putin has clearly avoided? Um, yeah. I think... Um Look, uh, the Chinese system remains opaque, and so that's the first caveat. Um, Decision-making processes are doubly opaque. Um, but I think there are two external evidence points I have that uh, he's not being presented with the full range of information um, or options. The first is, why did the United States, through uh, President Biden, recently uh, use summit diplomacy to present Xi Jinping and through him the rest of the system uh, with, with what was plainly a series of ongoing discussions uh, between the Russian and Chinese military of the supply potentially of Chinese military equipment to the Russians given their problems in Ukraine. My best understanding of that without quoting any sources is that the, the American system formed a conclusion that not all these information points were reaching numero uno or only reaching him in part, and that this was a deliberate attempt by the administration to flag it to the entire Chinese system, including the leader, because you cannot in the Chinese system avoid the content of a summit conversation. I know from my own 
some of the conversations, if you like, with Xi Jinping. When I've spoke, spoken to Chinese officials uh, on the side, is um, they will say, Kevin, this guy is the decision maker. So what he says to you in response to what you say to him matters systemically beyond anything else within the Chinese system. So therefore, I think there's a calculation that there has been some degree of information uh, non-provision by the normal bureaucratic and advisory uh, channels. Now, the second piece of information I've got comes from Chinese think tank land, who for some years now have been telling me that uh, most think tanks are too frightened to, pres to present any significant um, set of uh, either conceptual or policy alternatives for dealing with the United States and others, because they're not popular. You get into trouble, um, and you get into real trouble if you say, um, what you're doing is just you know wrong. So therefore, uh, you don't have to be a Rhodes Scholar to work out that uh, it is not career-enhancing to do a Beiwang Lu, uh, your own mem memorandum, into the Chinese system, which says, uh, Dear Emperor, uh, we really think you screwed up last week on the 4 February joint strategic declaration with the Russians. I actually think you did screw up. Um, and you really got ahead, out ahead of the skis of the entire system because we would never go that far normally with the Russians. We know you've got a bit of bromance going on with Vladimir Putin. Um, um, we think it's a bit weird, but we know you've got it going. Um, but could you please rein it all in because it's bad karma for China's long-term national interests, particularly if this schmuck loses or it's not a stunning win. Yours sincerely, Comrade Wang. Um, I don't think that's career-enhancing. Um, so, And my friends in think tanks tell me that's very much um, the reality because of fear in the Chinese system, which brings you to the third explanatory point, uh, which is across the Chinese system, there's a bit of a reign of terror. Um, it's not just Fang Fubai, anti-corruption. It's also the Zhong Dun, Dang, Dang Feng, it's the rectification movement. Uh, within the Zhengfa uh, Xitong and beyond the political and affairs, political and political and legal affairs system, and so that the number of people who, frankly, just disappear and are purged and who are then investigated for real sins or made-up sins uh, creates a further reign of terror. So, add all that together, uh, we have a problem uh, in terms of advisories. Um, and therefore, I think that explains why the Americans did what they did the other day on the military question. Thank you. Um, Kevin Rudd, I'm sorry. <laughs> Eric Higginbottom. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin Rudd, I, I'd like to... Yeah, well, first of all, thank you. This is absolutely fascinating. So I've really enjoyed this so, so far. I will admit that I have not yet read the book, but it's, it's on my list, and now it's moving to the very front of the list. Um, having said that, uh, you know, I, I agree with your main arguments or main themes as you've outlined them today. I do want to probe a little bit, though, in you know, how they're operationalized, and particularly on red lines, right? So I can imagine, you know, you, you said four or five, right? I can imagine right up there and one or two is Taiwan and, you know, right, yes, of course, number one. Um, and I can imagine what those red lines would be from the Chinese perspective. It would be political, you know, some political recognition or a declaration of independence on the U.S. side, use of military force. But my question is, you know, it's, it's evident that both sides are doing, you know, our salami slicing, right? So 
is it realistic to sort of stipulate that both sides could could state red lines and and sort of live by them in a way that both are comfortable with? So both sides are salami slicing. Both sides would argue that they're reacting to the other in doing so. Um, so is the argument that that the West, since we can't control what China is doing, should act with greater restraint, and that therefore, you know, we might expect China to reciprocate? Is it sort of a, an agreed, you know, an agreement between the two? Um, and to the extent it's restraint, would, would we expect reciprocation on the part of China? And how yeah, much of a problem do you think this is? No, you're right to raise this because it's uh, fundamental to the logic of the proposition. Um, and I've spent quite a lot of uh, I won't say sleepless nights, but a lot of time thinking about if it was me, how would I then design each of the red lines and sub-red lines? Uh, if you take the Taiwan question, put it at the top of the pile, which you must as a matter of strategic prioritisation, um, Taylor, you and I could, within about half an hour, knock together a list of about 10 to 12 um, sub-issues, each with sufficient granularity to them on the Taiwan topic uh, that would invite um, a complex paper on each. What I mean by that? Um, from the US perspective, what would you do in the event of massive cyber attack on Chinese econo uh, Taiwanese economic infrastructure or its, or its telecommunication system? What if they salami sliced physically Jinmen or Mazul? Uh, what if uh, you had a partial or total trade ban, which China then sought to enforce uh, with its friends and allies in other parts of the world? Maritime blockade, the usual spectrum. Each of these involves granularity. Secondly, imposing a discipline on, for example, the US and Chinese sides internally as to what you believe is tolerable within your own system is not a bad discipline. For example, has the United States system asked itself what it would do if the Chinese marched into Jinmen tomorrow? Now, I know PACOM has done that, and I know uh, Indo-Pacific Command has done that. I'm not sure that Washington's done that. Um, but I'd rather that done now than with 45 minutes to spare. Um, Thirdly, the point I would make is this. Once this process has gone through internally, an iterative process would then be engaged with the Chinese, which would not be by way of negotiating what each side's so-called red lines are, but internally and diplomatically indicating or declaring what they are so that the other side knows that if they are violated fundamentally, but through the mechanism of, let's call it the policing mechanism of the National Security Advisor and his or her counterpart in China, that a breach uh, would involve immediate retaliatory action of one form or another, that, that there is no free pass if that occurs. So the operational question, therefore, which arises is, is that more conducive to stability in the relationship strategically or what I describe as push and probe today. The problem with push and probe, which a lot of guys and girls in the military kind of like, is that it's a bit of a voyage of discovery when you push too far 
and probe too far and suddenly you've got a massive reaction and escalation arising from a single incident. So that's my overall approach to this question. Um, if I was asked, as someone did I think at Harvard yesterday, so how would you operationalize this to go to your point? Around the five red lines, I would commission five working groups within the system, um, the American system now, tell the Chinese to do the same if they want to. In uh, six months' time, uh, you begin e exchanging notes. Um, none of this is ever public. It has to be done at a level of high diplomacy. That's why diplomacy was invented, because public language, the, the fact that media loves it, just creates problems, uh, more than the complexity of the actual nature of the issues themselves. I'm happy to be proven wrong, and Taylor may do this, that if you wargame this out with game theory, whether my proposition is more or less destabilizing. Um, as a son of a dairy farmer, I have intuited in the absence of uh, game theory that it is more stabilizing, but I've intuited that. Um, I haven't proven that. And white, I would welcome critique and commentary on that. But that's the granularity of where I've got to in this so far. You are listening to an episode of Wednesdays with SSP featuring Kevin Rudd, the former Prime Minister of Australia. Ken, is that a one finger or a two finger? So two finger, two finger. Okay, uh, Ken, Ken Oi. Sure. Uh, my name is Ken Oi, MIT, and it's a, a two finger because of your invocation of game theory. Robert Jervis passed away. I knew this was recently. dangerous. <laughs> uh, and his writing on the security dilemma, and on deterrence and spiraling, on ways in which actions taken by a country to enhance their security may undercut the security of others and trigger reactions that leave both in a terrible state. I'm thinking about him and listening to you talking about the red lines. His insights and wisdom were to draw attention to that problem. And even the, the George Cannon, the, the oddest conversation ever, was sitting around talking about the origins of the Cold War with George Cannon, with Jervis's security dilemma piece as the object of discussion, and Cannon saying, if only we had understood these points better. Then he added that he thought Jervis wrote horribly and, and game theory was terrible, except that he thought there was wisdom. The question. That's a very canon observation. <laughs> yes, it is. But is there specifically in Jervis' thought insights that we should be taking account of as we sit in the dawn of the second Chinese-American Cold War? The short... Can I be heard? How's that? Oh, good. Okay. I feel like I'm singing in vaudeville here. The, um, uh, the, the short answer to your question is yes. Um, um, I hasten to add that my university work is in song and tongue poetry. Okay. So uh, game theory, even international relations theory, and everything else um, is way beyond my pay grade. I'm an area studies guy, so um, um, which has its advantages uh, and has profound disadvantages. But for those who specialize in this domain, I would invite and encourage them to apply the crude concepts of this book to the next stage. 
And it may be through an appropriate set of, of game theory exercises you can establish whether it's stability enhancing or stability reducing. As I said, I, I use my term carefully. Intuitively, as a practitioner, and having to make decisions of a lesser nature, but in a national security environment, I had to run a whole bunch of problems we were having at the time in our own part of the world, with Indonesia, significant country next door to us. So you've got to think this stuff through. Um, intuitively, uh, I believe that it is stability enhancing. There's one further reinforcing point. If you sit down, as I have done in the good old days, when you could go out to the National Defence University in Beijing, get on the Mao Tai with the boys, um, and sit around and talk about, are you really serious about having a war with the Japanese over Senkaku Diao Down? How's that going to turn out for you? You know, And then we have another round of drinks, and then they usually say, pretty badly. I said, yes, yeah, so this is a good thing. No. So, um, but what constantly affects me is the level of, shall I say, misguided assumptions in the Chinese system about the nature of the American bandwidth of possibilities in a given set of strategic circumstances and the probability of a given course of action. Um, and it is not just being lost in translation, it's being lost in concept. And so, therefore, as an element in the game theory, if I could go back to you and suggest, throw this in as a significant variable, which is um, non-comprehension by actors who would, we would judge not to be necessarily rational actors. And can that be fitted into a game theory uh, hypothesis? I don't know. Again, way beyond my pay grade. But I'm occasionally, no, I'm regularly stunned by when my... Chinese friends say to me, but the Yanks, blah, 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 blah. And I go, really? <laughs> you know, that's not the America I know. And we've been allies of theirs for 100 years, you know. And, uh, you know, yeah, sure, they do crazy stuff that most great powers do. Um, but not that one. Or the other one, which frightens the hell out of me, is all this stuff in the ideological documents most recently about, you know, Dong Sheng Xijiang. Rise of the East, fall of the West, um, uh, decline of the West, I should say. Uh, or phrases such as, change is not uh, seen in 100 years, uh, which is now the standard phrase, the standard tifa, the, the standard chi uh, yu, uh, banner phrase in the ideological documents. All this begins to point to a level of... Um, weakness, impotence, uh, division uh, within the United States, which infers that these guys have become a bowl of wobbly marshmallow. I can think of no worse calculation about the actual centre of gravity of the decision-making processes in Washington, D.C., than to have an assumption that the United States is too weak to act in a Taiwan scenario. Um, so it's another reason why I err in the direction of greater clarity in the communication of red lines rather than leaving us to the vagaries of rational game theory, let alone one which is information-deprived vis-à-vis a non-comprehension of um, the American predisposition. Thanks. Um, Diana? 
Hi, um, hi uh, I'm Diana. I'm a second year uh, PhD student in the department. And um, as a Chinese national, I'd like to look on the bright side. So you mentioned several times um, in your talk that uh, the situation is quite different from a natural cold war. And because um, for one, economic, uh, economic entanglement plays a role. So I wonder, um, given the 10 situations you have framed from the onset, what are the policy areas remains besides economic that you that you that we might expect to bring back, not just maintain, but bring back the facade of diplomacy? And if we were to see that happen in the future, what what mechanism is it? Bilateral um, leadership diplomacy, multilateral regional partnership. Where do we see that possibility being played out? Thank you. Hello. Yeah, I think. Um Given the reality of most um, political life in most administrations where the agenda is crowded, um, but certain things are critical, then it strikes me that uh, one of the things to do here is, if I was operationalizing this and in strategic competition between the two sides, as I said, step one, five working groups, five red line areas, send it off to MIT for some game theory testing, okay? Second set of steps uh, would be identify just two areas of the three that I listed before in areas of, call it, continued strategic collaboration. Climate, global public health, uh, global financial stability. Uh, and then turbocharge the collaborative endeavour um, by deploying not just minor officials, but senior officials to, quote, make it work. And I know enough about how these systems work, having been at summit level in the G20 on global financial crisis, at all these global climate summits, etc. I know how these things work. They work when the leaders engage, and they don't when they don't. Uh, Paris worked on climate because Obama and Xi Jinping engaged. Paris, uh, Copenhagen on climate failed because Obama and Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao refused to engage. Pandemic, you know what happened last time around. Uh, I blame you, you blame me. Um, uh, we're not out of the pandemic woods yet. Next pandemic. And there's so much debt rolling around the global economy at the moment that we haven't yet seen the full financial reckoning of this massive drawdown on global public finance. Uh, to get us to navigate our way through the um, uh, pandemic-induced global recession. So therefore, the stability of global bond markets, of global currency markets, um, capital markets more broadly, and in an inflationary environment and in a, uh, in a commodity price-induced inflationary environment, energy and ag commodities, that this is not a, a walk in the park. It's actually quite complex. Um, so I would pick two of the three of those, no more, put secretary-level people in charge of them, secretary of the treasury on their finance stuff, secretary of uh, health on the other stuff, um, and John Kerry, um, and, well, just John, he'll do, um, on, the, on the rest of it. Um, and guess what? You've got a realist enterprise working at one level and you've got a liberal internationalist exercise working at the other level. And that's why I'm ultimately probably on these questions a bit of a constructivist, but I know that's heresy. So there you go. 
two-fingered it? Yeah. Is this your one, one They dovetail, actually, perfectly. Okay. I'm very glad Diane asked your question. So uh, related to the idea of potential areas of cooperation as a way of adding insulation back onto the diplomatic wires that have been stripped, um, to what extent do you think that China's response to COVID uh, set a precedent or, or potentially really disappointed people who felt that some kind of a calamity of a global scale you know, might create a little bit of room for cooperation. And on the one hand, I think it was unreasonable for many states to expect that China would be all right with foreign inspectors on their soil, given, you know, long histories of international experience. On the other hand, you don't have to be a game theorist or have read, you know, Ken's work to know that costly signals uh, are really those that are the most effective, you know, sending assurances. And so should we, should we really be worried about the inability for the U.S. and China to reach common ground uh, on this issue, and, and what precedent do you think the COVID response set for the future? I think there's enough deep learning in Beijing and Washington. I can't speak for third countries other than my own um, about the monumental global public policy failure, which was the pandemic. Like climate, it's a global a global public policy failure and a market failure to cause national policy elites in both countries to say, it is in my national interest uh, to now, quote, make this work, unquote. Uh, for our sins at the Asia Society, we, we sort of row a boat up the middle of this. Uh, during um, uh, the craziness of the Trump administration uh, on climate, um, uh, I chaired uh, a working group between U.S. Democrats and Xi Jinping, the chief Chinese climate negotiator, for 12 months below the radar um, to keep collaborative relationships intact until such time as there was an election to decide who would be the next government of the United States. And there is enough commonality in the language and the conceptual frameworks of the Xi team and the Kerry team uh, and these are the folks that we had engaged, not John himself, but all those around him, um, that um, all it requires now is for presidents in both countries to give it the unqualified green light, and a lot could be done, mindful of the failures of what were American-induced post-Paris through Trump when they withdrew from the UN and FCCC and everything else. Um... And on pandemic, uh, for our sins, um, I have also have a, a global public health program in the Asia Society, which I preside over between China and the United States. Um, uh, not on pandemics, although we ran two seminars between uh, the US Center for uh, Disease Control and their Chinese counterparts with great political risk in both countries. Just to do what we could, as a not-for-profit, as a second track, as a philanthropic, I said to both sides, if anything goes wrong, you just blame me, okay? I've been blamed for most things in my life in Australia, so nothing's new. So, um, and uh, it was all my idea, don't worry about it, you'll be fine. But we've also got rolling now a very large-scale um, US-China initiative on um, advanced cancer treatment research, so the um, extensive large-scale field trials of US innovated cancer treatment drugs uh, with Chinese patients at scale so that you can get product to markets in 12 months rather than seven years, which is the normal trials file in this country. 
So you've got all the attendant complexities of each of that, IP and bloody, um, you know, biodata, you can imagine it, you know. But we've actually managed to keep it alive. So my point to you in the question is, the, the professional constituencies in both countries in these two areas of monstrous market failure know each other, know their stuff, know how to hit the ground running, know how to do stuff if we can provide a framework which causes political leaders in Washington and Beijing to conclude, I can do this without being written off as a softy on the hard strategic stuff around the red lines negotiations I referred to before. As I say at the very end of this book, what's the advantage of this stuff? You know, you know the Chinese term siwei, uh, which is uh, a way of thinking. Siwei counts for a lot, doesn't it, Taylor? If you look at the Sun uh, Bingfa, if you look at the uh, the military classics, the seven military classics, yeah, these are deeply imbibed into the way in which Chinese political military leaders think about things of da zhan de, grand strategy. True? And you know, it's very hard to get people to deviate from their suwei, their way of thinking. Same in the United States, by the way. Um, I hate to say this to my American friends, but you too have your own set ways of thinking. That's deeply ingrained into your political and strategic culture. We Australians understand it a bit more because we're basically like you, though we think occasionally you get crazy. Um, and um, like we decided to invade Iraq last time around, that was dumb. But, you know, we still go there with you and we still think it's dumb, but anyway, different story. Um, each side has its suey. If we manage to preserve the peace in this dangerous decade ahead, if we are able to manage substantive collaboration in a couple of non-critical areas, but which are frankly of emerging grand significance, ask the public, do they want global action on climate change? Would they like a sustainable environment for their kids and grandkids? Um, would they like to be protected from the next pandemic? Most of them would say yes. If we can pull some of that stuff off, it ultimately has an impact on the sui uh, in both cultures. Not completely. The Jeff PLA will still do what they want to do. Uh, US military, the, the good women and men out at West Point, they'll still do what, they, do what they're trained to do. The political class may have a different suwe, um, and the public may have a, a broader suwe as well. So that's kind of the longer-term logic of trying to prevent us from blowing each other's brains out on the way through. I don't see Canal. Did Canal leave? Okay, Eleanor. Thank you. Um, so the New York Times reported last week, I think, that the Chinese and the Solomon Islands are in the process of negotiating a security agreement of some sort. And uh, if you believe the version, the draft version that was linked in the New York Times article, this would include allowing the Solomon Islands to invite in Chinese police forces, but potentially also military forces. Um, and so I wanted to ask, how do you how do you view developments like this? How do you think about China's security cooperation with other states in the Asia-Pacific? Is there security cooperation? Is this uh, geared primarily towards protecting economic investments, or are there greater strategic interests at stake? Um, curious for your thoughts on that. Uh, I think um, China's strategic interests in basing arrangements around the world are primarily strategic and primarily military. You can't explain Djibouti in terms other than that. It's just kind of sits out like a sore thumb. 
the no negotiations underway in East Africa, um, probably Tanzania, but possibly elsewhere, same sort of thing. What's the future use of uh, other items in the string of pearls across the uh, Indian Ocean? Um, uh, so the PLA is not interested in Honiara for tourism. Um, and um, um, there's a whole range of strategic interests which uh, China has in terms of um, lines of um, undersea communication between the United States and Australia, which go through that goes through that part of the world. Uh, the uh, uh, traffic, the resource traffic between Australia, Can uh, Japan, and uh, the ROK, um, together with. Um, uh, the PLA potentially moving into a vacuum in terms of inadequate policing of fisheries resources in the region and for China to move into some of those resources in a more authorised way. So these are all active Chinese military and security interests with some economic interests vis-à-vis -vis fisheries attached. So this is a, a classic binary uh, Chinese diplomacy so far with one of the 13 uh, Pacific Island states has prevailed over the uh, diplomacy of the current Australian government. Um, I could critique elements of what the current Australian government have done. If you've run down the aid budget to these countries over the last eight years and told them that you don't share their climate change interests, many of whom have existential challenges vis-à-vis inundation from the sea, you diminish your political capital and your ability to deal with these countries. And uh, the Australian government has done all of the above, uh, something which, when we were in office, we did not do. Because we always saw each of these 13 island states as fragile, and they are. Tiny populations, massive maritime geography, how the hell do you sustain the economies of these places? Um, and... Um, so that's where it's up to, um, and I think this is just stage one of what's going to be a much more complex engagement uh, between Australia and the United States and the islands and the island states in the period ahead. And Beijing may think that they've secured a, a great um, tactical victory here. I'm not so sure. Um, there's a lot of playback uh, in the rest of the G77 at the moment about the actual impact, as we discussed earlier today, of um, uh, Chinese um, economic presence uh, in smaller countries. And so this is not just a one-way street that the Chinese uh, economic and military juggernaut comes and everyone stands back and applauds. Many countries do, by the way, because there's nothing else going. Many don't. Um, and it's a much more complex equation, which is not static, but dynamic. Um, well, Kevin, we're at the end of our allotted time. Um, I want to thank you so much uh, for coming and spending some time with us. I hope this book is read widely in both Washington and Beijing. It deserves to be read widely in both capitals and uh, has a great many insights. Uh, for those of you who haven't read it, I think you'll really enjoy it. Uh, and you'll especially enjoy the lack of fitness because um, <laughs> you'll read through it much more quickly. So please join me in thanking Kevin Wright. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Wednesdays at SSP. This is Chris Burns signing off.